We are pausing our study in the Gospel of John for a few Sundays, actually, to look at particular passages of Scripture that God has put on our hearts just to study as pastors and elders and then to convey to you today, you can join me in Colossians chapter 2, the book of Colossians chapter 2. There's a label, a phrase that I want to address for a moment this morning as we began. It's something I've heard a lot over the last couple of years, the phrase cancel culture. Let me try to define it. It's an attitude, really, an attitude of our culture. You could say it's an even, even a cultural environment that's been created in which an individual or an organization is publicly shunned or boycotted or support is withdrawn in some other way. They may even be fired from their job because the person is deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner at least as defined by the culture. It is therefore a contemporary form of ostracism in which someone is publicly disapproved of. In other words, they are publicly canceled. This practice often occurs, this cancellation, often occurs on social media platforms such as Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And in many cases, it doesn't matter if the person changes their view or even apologizes for their remarks. Society can determine that they are canceled forever, especially if you have failed in a hot topic category or even a hold a different view in one of those hot topic categories, such as making an unacceptable comment on a topic such as racism or the role of women or on gender what you've done will continually, or what you've said will continually be brought up to you, or even continually brought up publicly. J.K. Rowling is a good example of that, by the way. She was a very, is a very, was a very popular author, well-known author, someone praised for her genius in writing the Harry Potter book series. But once she made a comment about transgenderism that was deemed unacceptable, well, she was rejected, not invited to events, not invited to the party anymore. And that's the bottom line in the cancel culture. If you have failed in some way, forget it. You're done. Now, why has the cancel culture become so widespread Well, some tried to defend it, actually, by saying it's a necessary form of accountability in order to stop offensive behavior or harmful behavior or offensive remarks. But on the other side, in contrast, critics of it find it problematic. Some would say it's even toxic, arguing that cancel culture has a chilling effect on free speech, public discourse. Now, from a Christian vantage point, we would say that a problem with the cancel culture mindset is that it doesn't allow for genuine sorrow and repentance and thus biblical change. In other words, there is simply no forgiveness. 
So what do I think about it? What do I think about the cancel culture mindset? Well, if you're talking about the world's version of it, which is what I've tried to describe, then I think it's sad. It's tragic. Yet, I do support one version of cancel culture. In fact, I would say that I am personally the beneficiary of the ultimate cancel culture, as are you, if you are a genuine follower of Christ. It is the cancellation of sin that results from Christ's death on the cross. Now, we find this in our text today, Colossians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 13 and 14. Just to remind you, the theme of the book, the theme of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ and even the sufficiency of Christ. It's a theme clearly seen in some verses in chapter 1, like these, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The end of verse 18, Christ is to have first place in everything. Then in chapter 2, the author, the Apostle Paul, summarizes our sufficiency in Christ this way. Look at verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2. In Him you have been made complete. But here is an important question for us. How can that possibly be true of us? That we can be made complete in Christ after all. We are great sinners. And sin is a problem. Sin separates us from God. It is a wall, so to speak, between us and Him. So for God to make us complete, our sin problem had to be dealt with. And that is what is explained in our text. Let me read verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's a good Sunday for us to look at a passage like this because Our hearts are already turned toward this Friday evening, our annual Good Friday service, when we will, in a very concentrated way, be thinking about what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So it's a good Sunday even to dig into this passage and to marvel even today and all week over what God has done for us in Christ. Specifically, what we find here in this passage is that God has completed two incredible actions on our behalf, so that we can be free from the burden of guilt and so that we can experience completeness in Christ. Two incredible actions on our behalf. Here's the first one. Number one, he turns death into life. He turns death into life. Now, let me briefly review a basic Bible truth about all people, all mankind, Scripture teaches clearly that we are each born in a certain condition spiritually. We are born spiritually dead. We are not born neutral. We are not born good. We are born spiritually dead. That's the bottom line of our existence. 
But God gives to sinners who are spiritually dead new life. And that's a fact that's found in the main verb located down in the middle of verse 13. So jump just a little bit to the middle of verse 13. He made you alive together with Him. That's what we need. We need that. We need a divine act to supernaturally give us spiritual life, a quickening so that we're made spiritually alive. But when did God do this? Well, as we've already heard this morning, it's not after we had cleaned ourselves up. It's not after we had made ourselves presentable. It's not after we had put some things out of our lives. It's not after we had turned over a new leaf. Go back to the first part of verse 13 now. It tells us when. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions. Now, the form of that word dead Just the way the apostle wrote it describes an an ongoing state of being. In other words, we were born that way, spiritually dead, and then we continue to live daily in a state of being this, spiritually dead, and it's evidenced, proven by our many transgressions. Now, that Greek term transgressions can also be translated trespasses. That's a little bit more common term for us, I think. We see signs like that, you know, no trespassing. Ephesians 2 verse 1, that classic passage where Paul describes our spiritual death that we're born into, Ephesians 2 1 puts it this way, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, transgressions, trespasses. So we understand what trespasses means. The word itself carries this sense of a failure to meet a standard in some way. So when somebody is trespassing, they see the sign, no trespassing. Why? Because there's a line there. Somebody has some rights to that property, and they're saying, do not cross over that line. Do not come on this property. There's a standard to meet the property line. So this is a term used in the context like this to emphasize that people make conscious, deliberate choices to deviate from the standard. And in this case, it's the standard of the truth that's revealed in the Word of God that describes what the path of righteousness looks like. That path of righteousness, someone transgresses it, consciously and deliberately steps off of that path and goes their own way. Now, this word occurs elsewhere in Paul's writings many times. I'll just give you one example. Romans 4, verse 25, Christ was delivered over. In other words, put on the cross, crucified. Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions, our many trespasses. Many times in our spiritual deadness, Seeing God's sign that says no transgression, no trespasses, and we disobey anyway. That's what evidences our spiritual state, our deadness. Then verse 13 describes the state, the spiritual deadness, in a parallel clause. It says the uncircumcision of your flesh. Sinners are in a state of uncircumcision. Now, this is drawing upon what was common to the Jews, obviously. As we know, the Jews practiced circumcision, physical circumcision of the flesh. 
It was a sign going all the way back to, to Abraham, a sign that they were the chosen nation. They were in a covenant with God, part of that covenant. It really didn't say anything about their spiritual state, but it did say that ethnically they were the chosen people, part of the covenant of God. So uncircumcision would, became the traditional way for Jews to refer to people who were not Jews, Gentiles, because they existed outside of God's covenant. They didn't practice that right. And the Colossians, the original readers of this letter, were in that category. They were the uncircumcision. Yet, it was not the lack of practicing the physical act that was the real problem. Their physical uncircumcision was just an outward symbol of who they really were. They, were, they had uncircumcised hearts. If you go back to verse 11, he uses this idea of circumcision more metaphorically to talk about the state of our hearts. Christ circumcises our hearts. He opens our hearts. Well, that was the state of their heart. And the point is, the bottom line is, apart from Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is in the same state, dead, due to their transgressions, evidenced in their transgressions, and those trespasses arise out of a sinful or an uncircumcised heart. That is the state in which God finds sinners, and the miracle is that yet out of that state, He makes them alive, spiritually alive. What a miracle. We refer to that as regeneration. John chapter 3, Christ said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, you must be regenerated, you must be made alive. Only God can do that. Now, in personal experience, it becomes actual at the time of our saving faith. When we exercise, express true saving faith toward Christ, trust in Christ. John 5, verse 24, here's what Jesus says. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So in God's mind, the moment of regeneration, he makes us alive by his spirit It becomes actual in our experience because we express saving faith in Christ. That's an incredible action on our behalf that God performs. He turns death into life, but there's a second one here. He not only turns death into life, but number two, He turns condemnation into forgiveness. Condemnation into forgiveness. He made us alive. We've already seen when we were dead in our transgressions. But that doesn't mean he just winks at those transgressions and does nothing about them. He still had to do something about those, the trespasses. And he did. Verse 13 continues, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Those who come to Christ in humble faith and repentance, God forgives. Now, that's a wonderful word can't think of a more marvelous word than forgiveness. At the root of this term is the idea of grace. Grace, by definition, means giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy, God is merciful, but merciful is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. That's at the root of this term, forgive. It's the notion of grace or giving graciously. The idea is God is motivated by grace to give us what we don't deserve, in this case, forgiveness. 
He pardons us. Now, a couple of important questions are answered in this text about this wonderful thing called forgiveness. Here's one question. What's the scope of this forgiveness? What's the scope of it? Well, according to this text, he doesn't just forgive some of our transgressions. Look at it again. The text intentionally says God here forgives us all of them, past, present, future, total forgiveness, total pardoning. Something captured so poetically even in these Old Testament verses. Listen to Isaiah 38 verse 17. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Or Micah 7 verse 19. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. A poetic way of saying that from God's vantage point, it's out of sight. They're out of mind, out of reach. All of our sins. And note the change in our verse to the, in the pronoun. Note the change to the first person plural us from earlier in the, in the passage, earlier in the chapter especially. Us. The scope includes all kinds of sinners. So all kinds of sin, all sin, and all kinds of sinners. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He was a good man. He was a religious man. And yet he's unable to write about a subject like this without being reminded of the fact that even he, a religious man, needed the same thing. He needed forgiveness of all his sin. He, too, needed rescue from condemnation. The scope of forgiveness is all sin, past, present, and future, and all types of sinners. Here's another question that's worth asking. What's the means of forgiveness? I mean, how did God accomplish this? Well, the answer to this is important because someone might think, well, this is all wonderful, but there's a record somewhere. God keeps a record of all of our failures. And who knows? I mean, Maybe God might at some point become so frustrated with me, so disappointed in me, that He might just kind of bring that list back up and use that against me. Well, He won't. And that's because at the cross, any indictments against us were banished forever as any kind of voice that would ever condemn us. To say it differently... God destroyed the document on which our debt was recorded, so to speak, so that there's no record of it. Now, we want to see how that thought is developed, but before we do, let's keep in mind something about God's law. God has a moral law that is timeless. Now, by that I just mean there's timeless ways of defining what holiness is, timeless ways of defining what obedience is, and therefore time, timeless ways of defining disobedience to God. Now, for the nation of Israel, God's moral law was get captured, you could say, in the Mosaic Covenant. For Gentiles, they weren't given the law as the Mosaic Covenant, but Scripture still says that God's timeless moral principles are even written in on their conscience. Listen to Romans 2 verse 15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, there is an oughtness in every man's conscience, every person's conscience. So whether we're talking about the, the written law, the Mosaic Covenant, or we're talking about what's written on the heart, 
whatever form of God's timeless moral law that we think of, one fact is still true, and that is it's good. God's law is good. Paul declared that in Romans 7 verse 12. Here's what he says. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But God's law was never given to us for the purpose of being an instrument to solve our problem of sin. It was never given as an instrument for salvation because nobody is able to keep it perfectly, and that's God's standard. Scripture is clear that if you fail in one aspect of God's law, you are guilty of all of it. Listen to James 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Let the weight of that settle just for a moment. From the time you're conceived until the time you die, if there's been one moment of sin, you're guilty of disobeying the entire law of God. The bottom line is people, men and women, have not and could not ever completely and perfectly obey the law. Never could. Never will. And therefore, the law that was good ended up being a tremendous weight, a tremendous burden, because the law includes something else besides defining what holiness and disobedience are. The law includes the penalties for the disobedience. And the law makes it clear that God hates sin and He judges sin, which means the law ends up producing devastating guilt. Back to our text, though. Here in Colossians 2, Paul is proclaiming that it's not necessary to live under that weight. It's not necessary to live under the guilt because God has provided a solution even to the penalty that the law requires. And that solution is defined a particular way in verse 14, canceling. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Now, as I've already stated, our sin, our transgression, separates us from God, sort of like a wall that is built there, a wall that keeps two sides from having a relationship. Here, the wall is called something, a certificate of debt. That's an interesting word picture that really describes how hopeless our condition is. Now, strictly speaking, the term itself, certificate of debt, in the original language, just means a, a document that's been written by hand, a handwritten document. That's what it means. It came to refer to something more specific, a promissory note. In fact, in Roman law, it was something like an IOU. It was a statement of indebtedness, personally signed by the one who owes the debt. They understood what that means when Paul wrote it. So why did he use it here? Well, the Jews knew their obligation to God because God had given them the law. And the Gentiles, though they didn't necessarily have the Mosaic law or even know it at times, they did have that sense of oughtness in their consciences. So they too are in debt because of their failure to be obedient. Both are guilty. Both are without excuse. 
And that's what Paul is doing in this verse. He's using the idea of an IOU to point to everyone's ultimate indebtedness to God. We were created for one purpose. God created us to know Him, serve Him, worship Him, and obey Him alone. In other words, in a metaphorical sense, it's as if He created us and then we signed an IOU saying to Him that we would do it, that we would yield complete allegiance to Him, but we have miserably failed. So this certificate of debt, this IOU stands against us. It's a record of that failure. It's as if listed on it is every sin we've ever committed, every sin we ever will commit, every sin of action, every sinful word, every sinful thought, every sinful motive, what we call sins of commission, actually sinning in action as well as sins of omission, all the things that we should do that we don't do. All there, spelled out. And this indebtedness is so vast that no amount of doing any good things, no cleaning yourself up, no turning over a new leaf will ever be enough to take care of this debt. If it was up to us to solve the problem, we would have no hope. But God did something. Verse 14 says, He canceled the debt recorded in this document. The strict meaning of that Greek term is to wipe out, wipe away, blot out. He's saying that God has blotted out our debt. He erased it. He caused the list of failures to disappear. Now, verse 14 further explains this incredible word picture It does say decrees against us. That word decrees is the Greek term dogma. It can be translated ordinances. In the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it would be used to talk about decrees or edicts issued by kings. You find it in Luke chapter 2 in the New Testament where it says, we hear this at Christmas time, you know, Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world be taxed, an ordinance. But the best understanding of the term comes as we compare it to something else Paul wrote where he used it, Ephesians 2, verse 15. The only other place where the word occurs in Paul's writings. Here in our text, Ephesians 2, 15. There, Paul uses it to describe the commandments of the law, the Mosaic law. Listen to Ephesians 2, 15. Jesus abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances, decrees, It's referring to the law's regulations, the law's legal demands, which is what we have failed to keep, but it also includes the law's declarations of what the judgment is for those failures. So because we failed to keep God's ordinances, they stand in opposition to us. Notice that he describes this opposition in two ways. He says in verse 14, it's against us. That's to say that God's moral law has a claim on us. It has a valid claim. But we sin, and the more we sin, the more the decrees stand against us. So the law offers no hope. It offers no mercy. The law demands judgment, justice, not mercy. Do you know this is what God compares us to, His law? He doesn't do what we do. You know, compare ourselves to other people or compare people to other people. 
easy to do that. I mean, we can always find somebody that's worse than we are. God doesn't do that. He compares you to one standard, His perfect law. And that is why Paul once again numbers himself among those who are indebted to God. He says against us. Even he, a good religious man, failed in many ways. He still failed to perfectly keep God's law. And so the decrees end up being against us. Or he captures it a second way in verse 14, hostile to us. Just means they're, they're an obstacle. They're in our way. We can't get around them. So let's summarize it. All people have no hope on their own of solving their sin debt that separates them from God and which condemns them. On one hand, you have the decrees that are confirming, here's our obligation we have in obeying God. But on the other hand, you have this certificate of debt that is screaming out loudly and clearly the universal record that we have failed to meet that obligation. And the law demands for that failure judgment. And that creates this sense of condemnation that just hovers over us. Condemnation that will pursue us all our days and every part of our life, haunting us with the reality of God's wrath that we deserve. Yet, the good news is that God canceled this out for each of us who have humbly come to Him in faith and repentance. The record, think about it, the record, the IOU, and all the decrees of the failures that go with it, the record of our failures against the law of God erased. No evidence of its existence will be found. Nothing on that list will ever be brought up and used against us, ever. That's a glorious thought, again, at least for me. But as glorious as it is, God didn't stop there with just erasing the debt. I mean, you still have the document. He erased it, but He did something with the entire document. Look at verse 14, and He has taken it out of the way. That verb, has taken, means He's removed it. And the tense is so wonderful, it's the perfect tense which views it that it happened, it was completed action, but it left this settled condition that will never, ever change, removed forever. I love this modifier, out of the way. Paul chose a term that literally means in the middle. I mean, it was in the way, it was in our midst, it was in the middle. This certificate of debt stood between us and God. I said, there's a wall there, this is it, the certificate of debt. But he's taken it out from between us. There was this barrier there. It's gone. You know what we find now? God extending the invitation. We sang it earlier. Come, sinners, poor and needy. Come if you thirst. Come if you're weary. It's been taken out of the way. What do you do with it? He wad it up and throw it in the trash can, shred it. Not good enough. Look at verse 14, having nailed it to the cross. We understand what that means. I mean, Jesus was physically nailed to the cross, literally, but the verse says that God, in a sense, metaphorically nailed our record of disobedience to the cross. 
So when Christ died, He took upon Himself the penalty that we were under because of our disobedience. Therefore, His death fully satisfied God's demand for judgment and punishment because of that disobedience. He nailed it to the cross. There's obviously a bit of comparison here to that sign that was nailed on the cross. Remember that? There was a sign there. The king of the Jews. In a sense, that was the indictment against him. Here's the charge. And just as that charge against Jesus was nailed to the cross, Paul is saying it's like that. The charges against us were nailed there as well. So the death of Christ was, in reality, was payment for crimes, but not his. Payment for our crimes. It it was Christ's death at Calvary that canceled the certificate of debt. And that is why our deserved condemnation is turned into something. It's turned into undeserved forgiveness. Now we delight to obey the Lord just out of gratitude for knowing this. That His death has covered all of our trespasses, past, present, and future. Go back to that song we sang earlier, It Is Well. Do you you get the point of that verse now even more clearly? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. There's a question then before us today. It's this. Do do we have to live then with a sense of guilt because of our former bondage to sin or because of the many moments we have sinned, because of our present moments of sin? Do we have to live under that sense of condemnation? Must we live with a sense of of condemnation and fear of judgment because of our past and present and what we know about our future inability to perfectly live out God's law, I can only give you the Bible's answer, no. Not if you know Christ. We don't have to live under the burden of guilt if we're true followers of Christ because we are part, in Him, we are part of the divine cancel culture. God has canceled the record of our sins, even the greatest of your sins, what you might be thinking of right now, your your greatest sin struggle, the, the greatest sin of your past maybe that haunts you the most, that one, all of them, paid for at the cross, canceled. I don't remember where I read this. It might have been a commentary by Kent Hughes. I do know that he's the one that was discussing it. He wrote about an experience that Martin Luther shared. Luther once told some others about a a dream he had. And in the dream, he was visited by Satan. And Satan in this dream brought to Luther this record of Luther's life, written in Luther's own hand where he listed out in his own handwriting all of his failures. The tempter, Satan, said to him in this dream, Is that true? Did you write this? And the poor, terrified Luther had to confess it's all true. 
Scroll after scroll was unrolled, Luther said as he described this dream. And every time a new scroll was unrolled, the same confession was wrung from him again and again by the tempter. Did you? Are these failures yours? Yes. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure in this dream, having brought Luther down to the absolute lowest depths of depression and misery and guilt and sense of condemnation. When Luther says suddenly in his dream, he himself turned to the tempter and said, yes, it's true, every word of it, but right across it now, right over all of it, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's why I love Romans 8.1 so much. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Years ago, I heard Pastor MacArthur tell this story a few times. I even remember the first time he told it on a Sunday morning. He had just returned to Los Angeles from a trip somewhere, flew somewhere. It, it's a story because uh, as a side benefit, it, it explained how he, how John, Pastor MacArthur gets into gospel conversations with people. On that trip, on one of the flights, a Muslim man sat down next to him, not knowing who John was. And the conversation quickly turned to the gospel because the man asked John this question, well, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Pastor MacArthur answered, I have the greatest job in the world. I tell people how they can have all their sin forgiven and go to heaven when they die. Would you like to know how you can be forgiven of all your sin? It's a good way to get into the gospel. And John shared this. The man answered, yes. The man had no problem admitting he was such a great sinner. He says, I've sinned a lot. In fact, I'm on my way now to sin some more. So John explained the gospel to that man. What does gospel mean? It's the good news. It's the good news about what? Forgiveness. Cancellation. The good news of how someone can be part of the ultimate cancel culture. It's the good news summarized in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let me just speak to you today. If you've never come to Christ, I mean really, come to Christ for the forgiveness of your transgressions, your many trespasses, then you are headed for sure and just punishment and wrath. Come to Christ. You must come to Christ. And to come to Christ means that in your heart you... You sense your sin. You know the truth about it. And there's a genuine sorrow for, the, for that. You have this genuine yearning desire for that sin problem to be dealt with. You want help in forsaking it. If that's the expression of your heart, then it's simple in one sense. Not simplistic, simple. Humble yourself before God in your own heart. Confess your sin to Him. Your sin's against Him. Turn from it. Ask Him to forgive you. 
And with His help, commit your life to loving and serving Christ as the Lord of your life. If that's your heart, then God promises you He will graciously cancel your debt, your sin debt, and marvelously, graciously give you a fresh start. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage that helps us understand the depth and the breadth of what you've done for us in Christ. We, we take it for granted, really. We, we celebrate it. We think about it. We read about it. We go through another season of, of the Passion Week and Easter, and it be, can become so familiar that it becomes rote. So, Lord, warm our hearts again with what you have accomplished at the cross. Help us rejoice and serve you with new fervor, rejoicing over the fact that we're part of this cancel culture, a culture in which there's atonement, there's forgiveness, there's a future, there's change. Lord, I pray that as we think about it, even in the days leading up to the Good Friday service, that our hearts will even be even more ready to celebrate that evening. I do pray for anyone here who's never really come to express saving faith. Help them to understand there's a, there's a counterfeit faith, there's, just like there's counterfeit money. And it's not that you have to have a a profound faith. It's just a simple faith, but it just has to be real. Just like a real $1 bill is real money and not monopoly money. That it's just genuine faith, weak though it might be, of saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I put my trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin. Open someone's heart to confess that. In our Savior's name, amen.